Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with John Nixon, the author of Debriefing the President, The Interrogation of Saddam Hussein. This is his first book. He was a CIA agent and had a senior role as an analyst from 1998 to 2011. So thanks so much for being here, Mr. Nixon. Thank you for having me. Well, we're releasing this episode on 9-11 because while, of course, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11, the terrorist attacks led to the war in Iraq, and it led to our guest, John Nixon, meeting and speaking with Saddam Hussein and then writing a book about the experience. Uh, And without a doubt, the American war in Iraq that started in 2003 set that region on the path that it's on today. So... First of all, you're one of the few Americans to meet Saddam Hussein. You can probably, as you said, count them on less than one hand. So we've been told for a long time that he was an evil man, an evil dictator. Does he come across that way in a small room? Yes, in some ways, yes. Um, you know, there's no getting away from his own, his own history and, and the history that you know about. Um, he, you know, he he was he was a ruthless leader, and he could be very beneficent to people that he felt were loyal to him, or listened to him, or did what he said. But if he detected any sort of disloyalty or rebellion, he was very quick to put that down, and he would use very brutal methods. I will say this about him: I went into the debriefing having a very jaded opinion of who this man was. And in the time since then, I've, I've changed that opinion. And, and that my opinion now is one of, yeah, I, you know, he used a lot of brutal methods to kind of keep his country under, under control. But as we have seen, Iraq is a very difficult place and the, and the region is a difficult place to control. And while I don't approve of his methods, I, I, I have sort of a grudging respect for his willingness to 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 implement his authority and to keep uh, really disruptive elements in, in line. Well, we're going to get into some of his personality and some of, um, for the lack of a better term, some of the talents that he had and some of his personality. But I want to set the stage for how your life <laughs> wound up on the path that you wound up suddenly in a room with Saddam Hussein. So um, how did you first get interested in working for the CIA and where were you when the Iraq War started? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I had wanted to work for the CIA for a number of years. Um, when I was in graduate school, I was in the National Security Studies program at uh, Georgetown. Uh, and it's from there, that's where I kind of uh, got recruited right after my graduation. Um, and uh, it took about almost a year to get vetted by them, but I got in there in uh, 98. Uh, and when I, for my first account, we call our, we call the, our, when we're given a slot to, uh, uh, something to work on, a subject to work on, we call that an account at CIA. And my first account was working on, uh, as a leadership analyst, working on Iraq. And I was, I thought this is great. I, I'm fascinated by this guy, um, and I because I've done some work in grad school, and um, uh, I found that uh, uh, the more the, the more I delved into it, the more there was to learn. And it was, and he was just such a, a really interesting person. 
Um, as so you were an as, expert. You became an expert on Saddam Hussein um, as oh, you worked your way up through the CIA. Yeah, yeah, and and also um, I found that in working in the intelligence community, you, you find that there's one thing where that you have all this open source material, which back in the '90s was not that much. It, um, but still, it was it was a fairly good amount. But once I came into the intelligence community, I found there was a whole trove of information that I hadn't that, that I didn't have access to prior to working at CIA, and I had to get up to speed very quickly because I worked with some very very good analysts, and there was a at the time there was a pretty high standard. You were held to a pretty high standard in terms of your analytic work, so I, I really had to work hard on it. And yeah, and yes, I did develop an expertise in who this guy was and what I thought made him tick. Um, as far as the war goes, I, I was at CIA headquarters the night the war started. Uh, I was writing a PDB, uh, President's Daily Brief, for for the next day, and uh, I was, you know, with, with with some of my friends in Iraq Issue Group. I was working on Iran at the time because I had switched offices just prior to the war starting, and uh, but I was talking to people that night, and it was just kind of an amazing night. It was um, there was a lot of activity. And uh, you know, I uh, I don't want to I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but you know, when we somebody once asked me one, they said, well, how did you know when the war started? Uh, did 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 the CIA have cameras on the planes and and cameras on the bombs and the, as they as they went in, that's how you got the footage? And I, I said, no, we all watched it on CNN just like everyone else. Mm. And so is most of the information that you're collecting on Saddam over all these years leading up to the war, is this information that is publicly, um, that is culled from public places or is this, you know, closed data that only the CIA sees and that these are from sources and people inside the Iraqi government or or people who are on the ground in the Middle East? Yeah, um, um, the information that we get as, as, as analysts in the CIA. Um, most, we call ourselves all source analysts because we look at all sources, whether they come from CIA, DOD, Department of Defense, National Security Agency, uh, Department of State. You know, we, we look at everything and as well as the open source. But uh, for the most part, working in the intelligence community, you know, you're, you're focusing a lot on the intelligence, the clandestine collection material that is not accessible to the, to the American public at large. This is something that you have to be cleared to view and to read. And um, uh, it's some of it, you get all varieties of reporting and some of it can be very credible and some of it can be complete hogwash. And one of your jobs as an analyst is to sort of make sense of this sort of deluge of information but also to, to sort out what you believe is credible and what you think can be discarded. Did the CIA have a lot of information coming in about Saddam or was it relatively sparse? You know, um, they had a lot of information coming in about Saddam, about Iraq, about the Iraqi government, what they were up to. And a lot of it was crap. You know, mm. um, we, we had... Um, I, there have been a number of uh, accounts written in the past years in, you know, uh, by historians which have talked about this. And I think I also mentioned it in my own book, which is um, there is, uh, we didn't have an embassy in Baghdad and therefore we had a very limited presence in the country. Uh, I mean, and when I say limited, I mean really limited. 
And so we had to rely on liaison partners and walk-ins to embassies in the region and all sorts of things. And you, you, get, you, you end up getting a lot of stuff that can't be verified. You get some things that are, are, you know, are golden and then some things that are just like, you, you say to yourself, oh my God, what is this crap? Um, and, but I would say that the quality of information overall was very poor. Um, so let's describe then what you had. Where was Saddam when the war first started? Uh, what was the health of his regime? Was he popular? I'm just going to throw a few questions out. You can you know, pick and choose which ones would be most useful here. But what was the health of the regime? Was he popular? Um, did he ever realize how poorly and how fragile Iraq was? Um, and then did he hate America? Where was Saddam on that, that night when the war first started and we first see the missiles landing? Those are all really great questions. And those are questions that um, the Bush administration and the Clinton administration before used to ask us. Um, and uh, I would say that um, it's not so much the night of the war started to ask that question in terms of the state of the regime. It's more of before 9-11 and after 9-11 because the day before and, and the time before 9-11, we were all basically in agreement that eventually Saddam was going to get out from underneath sanctions, that it was just a matter of time. The sanctions were fraying daily and nobody wanted to enforce them anymore. And eventually he was going to win. Um, and then 9-11 happened. And then that changed everything. And I don't believe that Saddam fully comprehended just how much of an earthquake 9-11 was for the United States. Um, Do you know I, his I, reaction? Yeah, I talked to him about it. And he, you know, because I, I, I said, you know, I was expecting him to say, well, you know, the United States got what it's coming, you know. And uh, because I believe his regime had, had issued some sort of a statement um, along those lines. Certainly his son Uday had kind of crowed about America getting its just desserts in his, in his uh, media outlet. <laughs> that Uday is his son. Um, I asked him about it in captivity, and he said, well, I, I said, what was your reaction to 9-11? He said, well, it was one of relief. And so I, I looked at him, and I said, relief? What do you mean? And he said, relief because America would finally come to its senses regarding Iraq, and that they would see that Iraq poses no threat, that there were no Iraqis on this plane. Iraq was not involved in this attack, and that if anything, Iraq has the, the, the people who flew those planes into those buildings. Saddam was fighting those people as well, and he was referring to the, you know, the, the Islamic extremists. And, and he thought, if anything, that the United States would come to its senses and would move closer to Iraq to, because they would see that they had a common enemy. And he, he couldn't have been more wrong from uh, more wrong in, in, in his assessment because if anything, the, 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 especially the neocons in the Bush administration immediately began pointing the finger at Saddam, saying that he was involved. And, and Bush himself, according to Richard Clark's book, um, was, was very much looking for linkages. Um, and uh, I mean, there's some, there's some debate over when Bush decides that Saddam is the, is the enemy that he's going to go after in this war on terror. 
and it, and it goes back and forth. I, I'm, I'm of an opinion that George Bush decides very early on that Saddam has got to go. So where, and, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to ask, so, so where was Saddam um, with the health of the regime, his popularity in Iraq on 9-11? Um, well, you know, uh, he was still very much in charge. Um, no real threats to his uh, running the country. I will say this, and this is something that surprised us, uh, that we found out after his capture. Uh, and we, we talked to him, but we also talked to a number of his chief people that we had captured. And, you know, Saddam was very disengaged from running the country by this point in time. Basically, it turned over the reins of government to uh, some of his uh, underlings, people like um, Izzad Ibrahim al-Dhuri, uh, Abed Hamid Mahmoud, his, his presidential secretary, um, uh, Tariq Aziz. Um, and Saddam, by this point, was he was kind of an old man. And he was really pursuing his writing career, if you can believe that. It's... it's it's mind-boggling because we at the CIA, and throughout the U.S. government and throughout the intelligence community writ large, had this picture of Saddam as this master manipulator, this guy who pulled all the strings and made all the decisions. And while he still, he was still number one, he was still president of Iraq, he still made all the major decisions. He really had begun to delegate authority a great deal, and uh, and I think that's also one of the reasons why. As war began to kind of come closer and closer, um, you, you get a very, a very, very dysfunctional. Uh, I mean, the, the Iraqi government is never really functional to begin with during this time of sanctions, but it becomes even more dysfunctional, where you have, you know, military commanders and and national security leaders in the government looking to Saddam for guidance, and Saddam is is basically off sending drafts of a novel to Tariq Aziz and saying, let me know what you think, um, and, and really not keeping his eye on things. And, and then hoping at the, when, when it gets to be too late, basically hoping that you know, Russia and, uh, and uh, France and maybe some of his other friends on the Security Council will be able to kind of pull, pull his chestnuts out of the fire at the last second. This is kind of an aside, but did you ever read the novel and was it good? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yes, I did. I did. You did um, read it. Okay. Oh, my God. Um, Saddam was one of the worst writers that you'll ever come across. Even if you were trying to write, write bad prose, it, it, it wouldn't, you couldn't do it as poorly as he did. Um, it, it was when he was captured, his manuscript was captured with him. And that was one of my first, the, the week before we started, the week between the capture and when I started debriefing him. Um, that's what I did as I was reading through the novel, and it was it was painful. Um, he had it in. He had it with him, and I, I want to ask how that operation went down. But he had it with him in the hole. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Maybe maybe not in the hole, uh, but in he in the, this sort of this this small cinder block cinder block building that he was living in. It was there. Huh. Okay. Uh, describe how it went down. How did the operation go down? Um, and, um, the night that he's captured and, you know, there was all this talk about the deck of cards and where's the ace of spades. And, um, one day there's suddenly pictures all over cable news. We found him. 
and he's got that big beard and everything. Uh, so describe how that operation happened, if you can. Right. I, I was uh, I was not there, um, so I'm, I'm limited in what I can I can tell you what I know, but what what I think I know, but I was not part of the actual operation that pulled him out of the spider hole. Um, I just was uh, that day. We knew we were getting very close. We were we were basically liaising with uh, the special forces who were in Crete, who we had been going on a series of raids where people were getting picked up and we were really focused on finding that one or two chief bodyguards slash facilitators of Saddam's. And one was a guy named Muhammad Ibrahim Umar al-Muslit. Uh, he was a relative of Saddam's and he was the one person we identified as knowing where Saddam was at all times. And eventually, through, a, again, a series of raids, we, we found him and he turned fairly quickly. And then that night, um, like the day that, that, that night they went out, that day, we, we knew this was going to happen that night. And I was at the station, uh, which is the CIA station in Baghdad. Um, and around seven o'clock, I got word that um, a raid, you know, the raid had happened and they, they found someone. And then a little after that, I was brought into a meeting and was told, you know, look, they think they have him. They think they found him and we want you to go. They're bringing him down to Baghdad and we want you to go out to the airport and identify him, make sure it's him. And so they asked me to kind of throw some questions together for him. And well, that, so that I'm sorry. You, well, I, I was going to say it was funny the way you described it in the book, because it was almost like you were like a detective and, you know, uh, at a police station, you know, somewhere yeah. in middle America. And they said, hey, uh, uh, go find this guy who is wanted for a bunch of purse snatchings. Yeah, um, yeah. Very matter of fact, you know. Uh, so you hadn't been expecting that at all. Uh, no, I would say we. there was a point in time when I, I really had kind of given up in my head. I was like, well, we're never going to find this guy. This is this is going to be Bin Laden all over again, where, you know, we're just going to find empty holes. And, but about a week before, around the time of Thanksgiving, that's when I, uh, you know, that's when I was like, okay, I think we're onto something here. Um, but that night, yeah, they, they said, you know, put together a list of questions that you think only he can answer. And, uh, you know, so I, I, you know, I went out there and, you know, we, 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 it took a couple of hours just to, you know, get access and then to actually see him. Uh, I, I mean, it was about, uh, about nine o'clock when we headed out to the airport, which was only about a 20 minute drive. And then I didn't really get in to see the first, the military wanted to talk to him. Then I came in there. It was about one in the morning. And, um, I have uh, a great, yeah, I have a great quote that, that you wrote, uh, about it. Can I read it? to you sure. to jog your memory a little bit uh suddenly the door opened and i immediately found myself sucking in air there he was sitting on a metal folding chair wearing a white dish dasha and a blue quilted windbreaker i'd looked at videos and pictures of him for years and thought to myself holy cow you didn't use that word you didn't say cow but <laughs> holy cow it's saddam that yeah. moment for you yeah, it, I, I, I'm walking down the hall and I'm saying to myself, you know, what if this is another another mistake? What happens if this is another person? Because this has happened so many times where we thought we were closing in on him and then nothing happened. And, and I'm just like, oh, I, 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 I'll bet you anything they've got the wrong guy and everything. And then the door opens and I just, 
I just was, I just caught my breath and I just went, oh my God, I, I could not believe. And, you know, one of the things is identifying him. Like I was given, I was told, bring some questions and that way you'll be able to verify it. The minute I laid eyes on him, I mean, the second I laid eyes on him, I knew it was him. I, I, I studied videotape and pictures of this guy for years. And because we were always having to deal with questions about his health and, and, you know, and his psychological being. And so you would have to look at a lot of, with the doctors at CIA, you would end up looking at a lot of videotape, trying to see if there's anything wrong with him. So, um, and the, like I said, the minute I saw him, I just said, I'm like, of course it's him. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. But just I went through. Right I there. Through, I'm sorry? Just right there, right, right in the flesh. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and and very calm, just sitting there, like, like, yeah. I do this every Saturday night, you know. Uh, this is this is my usual routine. Um, so, what is it and, like for this dictator to suddenly be powerless? Um, he didn't even have power over himself at that point. Um, what is it? What, know, what was it like for him? Uh, he he didn't he he tried to keep his guard up as much as he could. He in some respects, in a weird way, being being guarded like the way he was as a prisoner was not very different from when he was president of Iraq and being guarded that way, you know, uh, except for the fact that he could order people around. Um, and, you know, but it was just, you know, his, his movements were restricted, even, you know, when he was a free man. And uh, he had to always think things through in terms of what his next moves were. Um, but, you know, he he was very much wanted to present this image of he was still president of Iraq. And that was something over the period of weeks that I got to know him, he, he always maintained, you know, and, but there were times when, you know, he, there were times when he would, you could pierce that veil and, and see like, okay, you know, like he's accepting the fact that he's a prisoner. He's accepting the fact that, you know, it's all over. Um, so, you know, he could be very defiant at times. Um, he could also be very charming, and very, like, very uh, personable and, and even funny at times. So you're getting it, it, a sense of this talent, this sort of multifaceted person. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he had, he had enormous political skills uh, in terms of his ability to walk into a room and to... Um, Put you at put you at ease, make you make you make it seem as though like you're 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 an important person. He wants to know all about you, um, and uh, make him make a few jokes about himself, and just just very very and a, a charming man. I mean, he really had at the first couple of times I talked with him, I, I was taken aback. I, I thought, they wow, this is this is re remarkable. <laughs> We've gotten this guy all wrong. Do you have to remind yourself that you had a job to do? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But as the thing is, as you get to know him, then you begin to see that this is kind of an act and that you start to peel away the layer and you start to see the Saddam that you thought you were going to get. And that's, a, that's another, that's a, a different side of him. It's an ugly side. And, you know, he could also be very um, uh, nasty, very mean spirited. Um, you could tell he's, this is a brutal guy and this is, you could also tell this is not someone you want to get on their bad side. And he was annoyed by, about the way he was treated. Uh, well, especially, um, 
especially that night during the capture, because one of the one, the, one of the interpreters um, who helped pull him out of the spider hole um, basically started beating him up, and uh, you know, and he that night he complained to me, uh, and he said, you know, I want. I, he said look at me look at look and he started pointing to scratches on his face and on his arms and he said you know if this if the roles were reversed and it was your president who was being captured taken into cap captivity would we have done the same thing no you know and he, and he was very very angered by that and i remember thinking my god this guy has brought so much suffering to his country and to the region and he's complaining about a couple of scrapes and bruises uh it was kind of one of these surreal moments but uh, you know, in hindsight, um, the interpreter turns out, I didn't find this out until years later, but the interpreter was, um, was a, uh, a, a, he was born in Iraq, he was a Shia Iraqi, and he lived in the United States. He had come over with the U.S. Army as an interpreter during Operation Iraqi Freedom, and he basically just couldn't control himself. And he just, and, and the picture, there's a famous picture of Saddam on the ground with a U.S army soldier like leaning over and sort of pressing him to the ground and looking up at the camera and that's the guy wow um so at that first meeting you have to find the bullet hole on him right to confirm that it's him well yeah you know i i <laughs> i was looking at um i was looking for scars um tribal tattoos and and just I was also looking at the way he talked because his mouth moved in a certain, a certain way. And, he, you know, he had this, this lip that kind of like the, I think it was the, the left side of his lip, that, which just kind of drooped. And I, 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 I think that was from a lifetime of smoking cigars. Um, but, you know, as I said, those things, uh, I was able to identify him through those things, but I really, I really didn't need to. Hmm. Um, uh, so now that he's in custody, um, what are your orders? Um, how often do you meet with him? Um, you know, how do these meetings go down? What's the preparation that you're doing? Um, just talk about, you know, focus us here on what your job is to extract out of him. Sure. Um, we, we didn't get a whole lot of guidance from Washington. I think Washington was still a little bit in shock as to the fact that they found Saddam Hussein live. Um, I think everybody, I, everybody in the military and everybody, I think, in Washington expected him to basically go down in a hail of bullets that, you know, he wouldn't survive the, the, the capture, um, that he would rather die than be taken alive. And we had at CIA had said the opposite. We said, no, this is a guy who wants to live another day. Um, he's, not, he's not psychologically prone towards uh, suicide. Anyway, having said that, um, you know, basically our orders were, we had a couple of questions uh, from the Bush administration that they specifically wanted to uh, answered. Um, same was true with the seventh floor of the CIA. Did you ask uh, straight up, did, did you, do you have WMD or not? Yeah, well, that, that's the, from the Bush administration. Really, that's that was what it all, was all about. And it was, you know, talk to him about WMD. Basically, what they wanted to do was they wanted CIA to take the first crack at him because they, we have the subject matter expertise. Um, and basically they were saying, talk to him about weapons of mass destruction, find out where 
find out, not find out if he has them, find out where they are, um, and, which is a, a big difference. And yeah. uh, what did he say? And, you know, and we, we talked about weapons of mass destruction a great deal. And he said, I don't have it. And I have. So he said, he said straight up. He said straight up. Yeah, uh, and he would often, often he would often phrase things like this. He would say, he would use counterfactuals and and counterfactual arguments, and he would say things like, "Well, you found a traitor to turn to find Saddam Hussein for you. Why don't you find another traitor to find where this WMD is?" And you know, he he would he would just say he explained in painstaking detail um, that he had shut his program down that he didn't have a program and that he would even go so far as to say that he never had a program and then you would have to and a lot of times what Saddam was when Saddam would talk to you especially in the beginning of a conversation he would make certain claims that you would say but Saddam no that can't be true because and then you would tell him why you know that what he's saying is not true and then he would back off his original statement and then re reconvert it to uh, uh, incorporate what you just said and then you would say and, and it was the sort of cat and mouse game where we constantly trying to like he, he was he was constantly trying to sort of get away with saying as little as he possibly could but eventually even it was a, it was an exhausting process but eventually you would kind of get him to the point where you would you would feel that you know you okay we are getting the truth here um, when I talked to him during those weeks, I thought at the time we were getting half truth and half lies. Um, and now when, when I was writing the book and I was going through my notes, I, I really, and in light of things that we found out later, uh, I now feel like he was telling us the truth maybe 85, 90% of the time. Hmm. Hmm. How many sessions do you wind up having and what is the key intelligence that you're getting out of him? What is valuable that you're getting? Um, as far as sessions go, I debriefed him during the period of, from the night of the capture, which was December 13th, until January, I think my last session with him was on January 11th. And we were debriefing him almost every day. Now, one of the problems during this time is that we, we've been told that the FBI is coming out and that they're going to take over the debriefing from us, but they have to get out there first. Um, so every day we never really know if this is going to be our last session or, or, or what, you know, and after about a week or two, it becomes clearer that, okay, FBI is not ready. Um, and it's going to be a while before they get out there. So we have a little more time and we can kind of maybe go into things a little bit, a little bit more in, in depth um, than trying to rush through things. Um, uh, so, I mean, I spent, oh, gosh, I mean, like I said, it was almost, it was almost every other day. And after a while, after about first two weeks, it was every day. And then after that, it was maybe every other day. Um, our sessions usually were several hours in length. Sometimes they, we, we never, it wasn't like a nine to five type thing. We always did this where we would um, come at a different time and sometimes our sessions would be two hours, sometimes they'd be five hours. We never wanted to make it so that he would be able to predict what time we'd get, we'd get there or, or how much time we would spend. And what was the most valuable thing that you learned from him? 
Oh, well, I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, first of all, the confirmation on, on WMD, um, which is, was basically um, the same that we were getting from some of his senior science advisors who, had, who basically were all on the same sheet of music. Um, and, 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 and this was verified through documentation, captured documentation as well. But also, um, you know, some of the things that he had to say, some of the things he had to say about um, the presence of Al-Qaeda in, in his country, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, you know, his, 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 one of the things that really blew me away, because he had a, a number of surprises. One was, of course, how, how disengaged he was, you know, and that's something, again, we had missed that. We, we didn't, we, we did not. And we and we should have been able to report that because there was a, there was reporting that we had received that said this and we did we hadn't passed it on to policymakers not to my knowledge at least um, uh, but uh, and we had a, a duty to do that but another thing we saw that um, Saddam had a very very good understanding of the the Islamist threat in his country and I think he saw that more clearly than we did. Um, and he's, he, he very, he was, one of the things that he did very well, you know, was suppressing Islamic extremism. We had no idea how much he, he they threatened his regime. One of the things I, I said to him, I said, what was the biggest threat that you, what was the biggest threat to the security of your regime? And I thought he was going to say Iran or the United States. And he said, Islamic extremists, Sunni Islamic extremists. And, you know, and then I was, I was like, I was surprised. And I said, why? And so I had no, we had no idea. We, we thought of Saddam's rule as being um, very monolithic and that basically there were no challenges to his, to his rule within the Sunni community. There had been a couple of coup attempts in the 1990s, but they, they didn't amount to much. But, but he identified for us the fact that, you know, um, the, the, the elements that would eventually become Al-Qaeda in Iraq how powerful they were becoming, and also how he had to keep his eye on these people all the time, and and that's what and, and he did his security services. One thing they were very good at was ferreting out any any attempts within the the civilian community or or the religious community or the military community of any sort of um, extremist elements. Does he ever hint at the future might be more difficult than you think without me around? Oh yeah, no. He said that. He said that many times, and he 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 said uh, there was one time he said um, he said to me he said you know you're going to find it's not so. Uh, let me let me back up a second. Um, I said you know we were talking and he said something to the effect that you're not going to win here, and I said what do you mean? Yeah, I, I said you know you're in jail, your 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 administration is no longer in power. Um, you know, a new government is going to be established. How do you, how did we, how did we lose? He said, you're not going to win because you don't understand the Arab mind. You don't understand Arab history. You don't understand our language. You don't understand anything about this place. And I, I had to understand, I had to, I had to admit he had a point. Um, but then he said, you know, um, you're going to find that it's very, this is a very difficult place to, to run. And, uh, uh, and he was right. He was absolutely right. Um, in that sense, Saddam knew much more uh, about his own country than we did. 
And, uh, uh, you know, I think that if he had, I mean, I asked him, I said, you know, we were talking about his popularity. He said, if you held an election today, I would get 80% of the vote. And I said, I was like, well, how, how, do you, how do you manage to come up with that number? And he just said, it's easy. It's like the people, the people want me. They want authority. They want, they want security, you know? And, and at the time I thought this guy is delusional, you know? And, but now I think if a Saddam Hussein came back to power, I, I think he'd get, I think he'd get those mythical 99.5% of the vote. I, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's so, it's so crazy to, you know, to think about this, but and since I wrote the book, since I left government and since I wrote the book, a number of Iraqis and a number of Arabs have reached out to me on social media. And, you know, they, whether they're Sunni, whether they're Shia, even Kurds, they've all said the same thing. They would take them back in a second. Wow. They would take them back in a second. Unbelievable. Um, Comparison uh, to what they've experienced since then. Yeah, that says a lot about, right, exactly. That says a lot about what they've gone through. Um, so then you go to the president, you, you go to Washington, you, you begin to send these messages back about WMD, about Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and about um, their efforts to suppress um, uh, Islamist violence uh, there, or I should say extreme uh, Islamist violence. Um, and you go to Washington. So uh, first, you know, this is where the title of the book comes, Debriefing the President. So um, explain what the reaction is in Washington um, and what the briefing experience is like when you walk into the Oval Office? Well, um, uh, the minute we began to send that message back that there is no weapons of mass destruction, there are no weapons of mass destruction, uh, that was not, it, it was, it didn't make anyone happy. And uh, when I got back to Washington in January of 2004, I was struck by the lack of any, there was really no, no interest in hearing any more. Nobody really cared about what he had to say. Um, in fairness, I will say this, to the Bush administration, um, 2004 began very poorly in Iraq. Um, you had a growing insurgency, you had the Abu Ghraib scandal, you had the killing of the co contractors, in Fallujah, uh, and then you had the Sadrist uprising in the spring uh, in, in Najaf, and uh, they, were, they were going from one crisis to another, and what Saddam Hussein had to say in prison beyond what WMD, they could have cared less. It wasn't until 2008 that actually I went into the White House and talked to the president about, uh, about, the, uh, about the debriefing, uh, and that was mostly in regard to well, it was prompted by a 60 minutes interview that, that was aired in January of 2008, in which George Pirro, the special agent who took over from us in uh, Iraq with the debriefing of Saddam Hussein, um, he had made a, a number of statements on, on 60 minutes, and suddenly they were at variance with what, what the CIA had been saying. And so the administration wanted to know, the president wanted to know, well, what's going on? Why, why are you guys? telling me different things. And, you know, um, George Pirro said that, uh, that Saddam claimed that he was going to restart his weapons, his WMD program, and that, uh, uh, and this is, this is music to the ears of the Bush administration, because 
short of finding WMD, a, a, a Saddam that's determined to rearm himself is a pretty good justification for the war. And uh, but George Apiro's um, assertion is based on basically nonsense. Um, and you know, it's basic. It's based on a statement that Saddam made in terms of um, when Piro talked to him. Saddam said something like, "He he wouldn't answer the question directly. He would just he just kept on saying, I will do whatever I have to do to 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 defend my country.' And that's what he would do from time to time. He would give you these very cryptic answers and then let you come to your own conclusions. Well, he said that about a lot of things, you know." But we have we at CIA had seen no verifiable efforts at trying to reconstitute his WMD program. There was nothing in the plans. Everybody else said this thing was was done was done and over. And also Saddam was not. I mean, as I said, he was sort of disengaged. He was not going. This is something that had caused him so many problems. He was simply not going back to it. How does um the experience of going into the Oval Office and meeting with, with our leaders, um, how does that um, make you go back and reflect on what it was like to meet with Saddam Hussein? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it was, anytime you get asked to go to the Oval Office and meet with the president, it's a, it's a pretty um, intense experience. And you have to be prepared to answer all sorts of questions. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult because, you know, you, you're going to meet with this person who, some, you know, in good times or bad times, has a lot on their plate. And sometimes they get unfairly maligned for things that they've done or criticized heavily for things that they, they for mistakes that they've made. And you want to be helpful. But you also want to tell them the truth. You know, you don't want to. And there's a there's there are plenty of people around the president who are more than happy to tell him what he wants to hear. And and that's the thing you got to fight as an analyst and as a briefer. You want to be able to say you want to give them the facts straight and simple. And, um, you know, as far as George Bush was concerned, um, I, I, I have very mixed feelings about him because. I, I voted for him twice. I, I, in 2000, I was enthusiastic about him. I, I think, however, you know, the experiences of this war showed me what a disaster his presidency was. Um, he, he was not somebody who, in my meetings with him, if you, my experience was that if you gave him good news, he, he was all very happy and very complimentary. And if you told him something that he didn't want to hear, or if you told him something that he, that he disagreed with, um, he could be pretty nasty. And, and, and you know, I, I came in there with no agenda whatsoever. I just wanted to, you know, basically try to help as best I could and to tell him the truth. And you wrote um, that, you wrote that when you were in there, you're so focused on the briefing that you don't even think about the fact that there were all these, in, that you're in the Oval Office, that there are these incredible documents, incredible paintings and pictures. In other words, you get no time to appreciate the history of the room you're there yeah. solely focused so focused on not like tripping and falling or you know what i mean you do, you just want to sort of make it make, and there is a there's a certain thing like well, we, we would get there and the dni would take us a, take out a sort of a blueprint of the oval office and he would sort of trace with his 
with his finger and say, okay, walk over this way, turn to make a right, and then sit in this part of the couch. And you're just, you know, like, you just want to make sure that you're not doing anything wrong. Um, but it is, it, it's, it's really an intense experience. And um, I, I had, I had, I did one session with him where it just went brilliantly. And, you know, and I did one session with him where, you know, I, I told him something that confused, well, I told him something that, that he thought the opposite was true. And then I tried to explain it to him. And the more I tried to explain it to him, I could see the more confused he was getting. And then he would just, he reverted to his sort of um, knee-jerk positions, which is that everybody wants freedom. And I came and I freed the Iraqis. And, and, and it, was, it was the worst half hour of my life. I'm telling you right now. Um, it, it was, uh, was what was the sitting. point of contention? The point of contention that you disagreed on? We were talking about. I, I was there to. I was there with the another briefer, and the other briefer had the primary briefing role. And the president really didn't want to hear what he had to say, and he knew that I was an expert on Muqtada al Sadr, and Sadr had just gotten his ass kicked in in, in Basra, um, and this was this was in May of 2008, and uh, and he wanted to know what's going on, you know, because that they Sadr had been in a had been a thorn in the side of the administration since since 2003 and now all of a sudden it looked like Sadr was finished and I just said to him uh, Mr. President I, I think that Sadr is going to be around for a very long time and I think that you know he's somebody, somebody that we will have to contend with as Iraq develops politically and it, it was almost like I said your father is a child molester um, he mm -hmm. just looked at and then and the funny the strangest thing happened well not so strange suddenly everybody in the room sort of circled the wagons around the president. And then I became the, fo the focus of evil in the world. And they just started throwing questions at me, trying to kind of trip me up. And it was, it was a very unpleasant experience. They, they were trying to show their loyalty to him and also to discredit me. And, uh, and I, I, I sat there for half an hour fielding questions from you know, from Condoleezza Rice and Stephen Hadley and uh, Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and uh, who else was there? Oh, Gates was there, Secretary of Defense, uh, Vice President Cheney. Dick Cheney, yeah. They're, um, all, they're all just having a field day. Well, I bet you needed a, to toast a glass or two after that one. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, how did you feel when Saddam was hung? Um, I, I was really, really disgusted and horrified by it because I thought one of the things that we went there to do was to help the Iraqis establish a new government and, and rule of law and, and, and a new order of things and to show them that no longer are people like Saddam Hussein going to run your lives, that there's going to be, you know, you're going you're gonna to have rules here, you know. And instead, what we got was this lynching in the middle of the night, and where Saddam Hussein was the most dignified person in the room. You know, he was he. I I thought I I knew he was going to be executed very early on. I, I, it just struck me that there would be no other alternative, that no Iraqi court would would would, would just say say put him in prison for go to jail. Life. Yeah, right. And and he knew it as well. And he said as much to me, um, but 
I think he fully understood that it was that when it happened, it was going to happen like this. Whereas I thought it would have been a much more of a um, more ceremonial in which everything there would be a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it would be done the right way, and it would be done so that people could see justice being done. But instead, it was just it was just mob justice. Yeah, I remember and those I, images coming out. I thought of all the, you know, all the Iraqis, all the Americans that had lost their lives or had been injured and whose lives had been transformed from their injuries and all of the money we'd spent and all the time and effort and commitment. And I just thought this, this, this is so wrong. It is just so wrong. Where is Iraq right now? Um, ISIS isn't in the headlines. Iraq's not in the headlines. Other things are happening. Uh, what's, what's going on there? Yeah, it's um, it's bordering on becoming a failed state, and um, it is very much a, a sort of a junior partner to Iran. Uh, there are many Iraqis who really are, are very unhappy about the way Iran has come into their country, and I, I'm not going to say that Iraq is a puppet of Iran, but Iran has a lot of sway with the, the Iraqi government. They have a new prime minister who is trying to assert himself vis-a-vis the Iranian presence and the Iranian pressure, but whether or not he's going to be successful, who knows. But it is, um, it is far from being a country that is going to be, you know, uh, you know, it is far from being the country that it was, say, in the 1970s. When you know, you've had a, you, for all of Saddam's faults, and there were many, um, you know, he did develop the country. He was very proud of that, and and he should be commended for it because the thing is, they had they had it was secular. They had education. They were building cities. They were building roads. They were building hospitals. They were building schools. He told me this every time I asked him a question about. Um, about uh, human rights abuse, he would say, "Ask me about how many schools I built. Ask me how many hospitals I built." And he, you know, and it was this little game we played. But the thing is, he was right. Um, you know, and, and Iraq is nowhere any is nowhere near that. You have a kleptocracy at the top that's just stealing everything, and the regular people, the you know, the the the, the class of people that are not part of the political class, all suffer because of it. Is it the kind of place that a terrorist attack, I hate to ask an American centric question because there's a big world out there, but uh, let's face it though, you know, this was part of the justification for the war, um, which was we need to make Iraq the kind of place that a terrorist attack can't be launched from. Is it the kind of place that a terrorist attack against the United States could be launched from? Well, the thing is, you know, the, the, the terrorist attack that was launched against the United States didn't come from Iraq. Um, and, and, you know, and, and the thing is, it couldn't have come from Iraq at the, during the time of Saddam Hussein. Having said that, though, um, what is more, I think, more accurate would be that while ISIS is, you know, has been, has been neutralized, you know, ISIS hasn't gone away. And the thing is, the, 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 the elements that propelled ISIS to the forefront are still in Iraqi society today. And, you know, it, like I said, the Iranian domination, it's the Sunni grievance at being, at being made the underclass and having absolutely no rights and having no prospects for the future. Um, it is, it is the, the corruption at the top of the government and in this oil wealthy country. 
Um, and it is these things are going to are going to fester and ISIS will come back at some point. And I think they'll come back in an even more virulent form the next time. Uh, they are not defeated and they are certainly not um, a, a thing of the past. What's the best source? What are the best sources just briefly for learning about Iraq right now? Oh, um, that, that's a great question. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm really hard pressed to tell you because um, so much American media is focused on COVID-19, the Trump yeah. show. Uh, all this, it's like Iraq very rarely makes the pages of any of our major newspapers. I mean, is the BBC uh, worth it? Uh, oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, if I want my Iraq news, um, I will go to BBC first. I will also go to um, uh, various other regional regional outlets and a few think tanks in town. Middle East Institute is is really great. They've they've done some very good work on Iraq um and uh and just it's but it's it, it's it's sort of like yesterday's news um until something really bad happened i want to end on this question um did you guys like each other i think we respected each other uh i, I know he was very glad to see me leave because i i would was the one who would ask the questions he didn't want to answer and i would also ask questions that would get him angry um and so when I left, he was very, he was, he was glad I was leaving. Um, I found him to be, you know, exhausting to talk to. Uh, and at the end, he, uh, he gave me this, this going away. I just, I, I told him that I was leaving because uh, my mother had died. And uh, I said to him, <clears throat> and I wanted to make sure that I had my, the person who's taking over for me, I wanted to make sure that there was a good, a good handoff here, you know, and I, and I said to him, like, and I just said, thank you so much for talking to me and, and thank you so much for explaining yourself. I said, I feel I know you and your country much better because of it. And then he stood up and he reached out. I, I reached out my hand first, which I had never done before. I always waited till he reached his out. And so I put out my hand first and then he grabbed it and then he locked onto it with the other, with the other hand and then he wouldn't let me go. And then he started talking to me and he started saying all this stuff and just, you know, all the, the, the important work that you're doing. When you go back, I just want you to remember that the two most things in life uh, are to be just and fair. If you are just and fair, then everything will be all right. And, and all this other stuff. He's, and, I, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this where somebody is shaking your hand and they're not letting go and you can't free yourself and it gets to be kind of uncomfortable. Well, I have, um, but not with Saddam Hussein. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, it, it was, it was, it was just, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks Saddam. Gotta go. And, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he let go. And that was the last I saw. John Nixon, one of the few Americans to ever speak with Saddam Hussein, certainly after uh, the 1991 Gulf War and the author of Debriefing the President, the Interrogation of Saddam Hussein. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, certainly check out that book and his social media page, which is on Twitter at John Nixon 18. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. 
Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.